Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with civil engineer Mike O'Connor about surviving the economic ups and downs of an engineering career. Along the way, we cover Philo Farnsworth, Concrete Slump, and GT Strudel. It's not a pastry. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 104, Downturn, March 17, 2016. So, Adam, do you ever think of your profession as being cyclical? Uh, all the time. It, it's uh, at least where I work, everything's very, very cyclical. You've got cycles of, of projects starting up and having to get completed on, on a very regular schedule with lettings on a regular schedule and construction starting up the same time and finishing the same time every year. And then on a bigger scale, you look back at the old plans as you're, you're trying to figure out how we're going to do the next project and looking back in historical plans and you can see, oh, well, back in the early to mid sixties, there was a ton of money spent and, and then the projects kind of died off. And then back in the eighties, we did a whole bunch of stuff and then things have died off and, and now we're picking up again into another right. one of those. Uh, yeah. So there's definitely is this, these cycles of lots of things happening and, um, a chance to breathe, maybe. Sure, sure. Well, I thought you were going to say that the bike lanes were cyclical. I, I suppose that could be true too. <laughs> oh. I think they're more exponential. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so engineering, like all other uh, fields of, of employment, has its ups and downs, and and uh, you know, from time to time, a particular engineering field may suffer an economic downturn. Uh, and when the economy turns south, engineers certainly are not immune uh, from financial and social pain. Uh, for instance, petroleum engineers who were receiving huge bonuses just a few short years ago may currently be having trouble finding jobs now that the price of oil has dropped from over $100 to uh, recently was $33 a barrel. And uh, uh, some 95% of graduates with a bachelor's degree in petroleum engineering found work in the oil and gas industry in 2014. Uh, according to the Society of Petroleum Engineers. Uh, but in 2015, only 64% of them found work. So in this episode, we're going to talk about surviving an economic downturn as an engineer. And so to help us with this discussion, our guest for this episode is Mike O'Connor, a retired civil engineer who, as a professional engineer, spent over four decades in the fields of construction and project management, working in both the private and public sectors. Mike, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thanks for letting me be here. Well, I'm so glad that you could uh, you could join us and uh, give us some of the uh, the wisdom of your experiences as an engineer. <laughs> I will try not to disappoint. You. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, uh, our our usual opening question is: What got you interested in engineering? Uh, a long story. At the time that uh, you asked me that question, I I wrote in the uh, notes: Do you have time in a forest? And you said, Sure, sure, uh, right. I think uh, for me, engineering was something I wanted to do as a young person. And uh, unfortunately, I was discouraged from it. Uh, my family strongly discouraged me from going into the field. Mm -hmm. uh, and my father had uh, was working in the electrical area 
and was going through something of a downturn. There was a quite a bit of consolidation in the mid '60s that was happening. One of the big electronics companies. This is this whole thing we're talking about cycles tonight and everything. How many people here remember in this conversation remember Philco Corporation? I know I have the name. I don't really remember the company. Philco, Ackerwater Kent was the guy with Philco, and they were the ones that actually uh, were neck and neck with Sarnoff and RCA. On the, on, they were actually ones that commercially uh, uh, developed television. Mm-hmm. And they were, Wait, they is, were that, is that the Farnsworth Company? Say again? Is that the Philo Farnsworth Company? No. No. Atwater, there's Philco, P-H-I-L-C-O, and then there's – uh, they were the ones that did uh, Atwater Kent in Philadelphia. They were the ones that started off with radios, and then they did commercially developed uh, TVs. And uh, and then you had the Philo Farnsworth was the guy who did the other demonstration of TV, but he was the guy that did electric fusion. Mm-hmm. And he did some other uh, the other work, but it was a different guy. But the uh, but Philco, my dad worked for Philco. And it was classic engineering, a classic story. He worked up from the drafting table into the engineering office. And uh, right around the time, Philco crashed over the uh, edge. And Philco was picked up by all people by Ford Motor Company in 1963. Uh, the conglomerate era. Exactly. And uh, so Ford basically gutted Philco and a lot of, you know, left a lot of people out on, uh, you know, at work. Uh, there were there was a battle, a technology battle going on in the 1920s between RCA and Philco. And again, my family had been involved in, it in that my uh, grandfather worked for Philco again back in the 1920s. And right before the stock market crash, he got recruited by RCA to go over to RCA. And then he was and then a crash hit. And then he was laid off about a year after the crash, whereas everybody he worked with at Philco had worked through the depression, even though they short weeked them, but they had, they had gotten through. So that was kind of like my family background coming out. There was a, there was, it was a scant eye look at, uh, you know, when you told people you're going to be an engineer, everybody kind of looked at you like, really, mm-hmm. uh, do you really want to do that? And then I had, uh, I was very weak in, uh, in math coming through high school. So pretty much my profs, you know, my teachers did everything they could to discourage me from going into that area. And I thought that uh, I wasn't going to be an engineer. And uh, I managed to get, uh, what what happened was I managed to get into construction and I, I had a break. I got into construction, uh, a very, very different, you know, construction in Philadelphia in the 1960s was almost impossible to break into unless you had a union reference or somebody in a house or somebody had a card in a family. Sure. And I wound up getting a construction break on a masonry job in Philadelphia between a bet between a bricklayer up on a scaffold and a, and a labor gang on whether or not I would last a week. So they bet each other 50 bucks. This is 1967, 66. And so you think of what 50 bucks was in that period. And they bet each other 50 bucks that I would not make it a week. So the guy who had 50 bucks riding on me failing was my labor foreman for the week. And that was my introduction to construction. Wow. And you were fired at the end of the week, right? No, I <laughs> stayed there the whole, the whole summer. And at the Bob Miller was a guy's name. And he had this Southern draws go to me, scream at me, Mark! you know, and I would just like this constant, it was like working on the pyramids, the last pyramids they were building in Philadelphia. You figure this period, there was no real hydraulics. There was no cranes. This was moving block. We were moving 12 inch solid masonry block. Those things were 60, 
50 to 60 pounds a unit. We were carrying three of them on a wheel. We used to nickname were sleeping pills. And we pushed these things up two planks, went up a four-story building, and we pushed these things through like these 24 by 30-inch holes in the wall. And so you'd be pushing this wheel through there. But the guy came up to me at the end of the summer and said, that was the best money I ever lost. He, he complimented <laughs> me at the end. But I, I I worked through the construction, and I and I had a knack for it. I could do layouts. I could stock scaffolding and I could look at a drawing and I could instantly in my head run the numbers and I could stack up. I knew what the union rules were in terms of how many coursework you could go up before you had to jump the scaffold, half scaffold jumps, full jumps. And uh, I could run all those numbers in my head and I could step into a room and they could turn me loose in a room and I'd stack the whole floor up. I'd have everything all laid out and I could do the layout. And and so they, they gradually let me do more and more of that. And uh, that's what kind of got me hooked in this in that range. The one thing I have to say about construction, particularly back in the sixties was, was a beautiful, but terrible thing. Uh, we would load masonry on a scaffold with bricks. And I don't know if any of you were talking about some type of a YouTube thing you were watching, but if you've ever watched people pre OSHA and pre mechanization load scaffolding where you would throw three brick at a time up mm-hmm. and you'd have about 10 guys in a scaffold and you'd, you'd throw the, you'd swing it up above and you'd come down and like literally right in your face would be three more brick. And it, you had about a half a second to grab it. And then it was just the rhythm of moving brick up to the top of the scaffold. It was an incredible thing to be a part of and to see. But if anything went wrong, it was Katie by the door. Everybody's scrambling to get out of there because <laughs> all the bricks would just drop down through the scaffolding. And uh, it was it was really amazing. Incredibly segregated and, and racist environment. It, you know, For a kid who had been in the suburbs and had never been exposed to that type of language, or racism or segregation or bigotry, um, something I'd never, I was just, I was 17 years old. I was shocked to see that type of stuff. And I was shocked at how rough the industry was, uh, crap games all the time. And I'd see guys who would bet they get paid Thursday and the rest of the day would be spent on floating crap games. And I'd see at least a couple of guys on each Thursday when we got paid like every other Thursday who would lose their full check. And then you'd see this shock in their faces. Like, well, what am I going to tell my family tonight? I never saw anything like that uh, in my life, in my type of, of, of background, but I had all those experiences and that kind of was very formative for me in terms of understanding what it was like to lead a group of people. We had a gang of about a hundred guys on the site for the jobs we were. And I ran a labor gang of about, about 10 or 20 guys at setup gangs we would go through and do the setup. So I, I, I had a facility for it and I kept getting work for that. But this was, you know, this was a, a lot of change was moving through. Basically, at the end of the 1960s, uh, we had Vietnam. So there was a lot of, uh, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty back then because you know, we were, we were getting drafted. They were talking in the 68 timeframe of abolishing the college deferment. So I joined the reserves because I didn't know if I was going to be able to finish college. So I wanted to be able to make sure that I at least got through college without getting pulled out. I had about 110 kids in my uh, high school class and basically almost about 80 or 90, 90 of them got pulled out on the uh, uh, drafted, mm-hmm. got drafted out. And most of them went into the army. We actually lost about 20 guys out of my class in the conflict. So that was a, that was a factor back then. So I, I went to, uh, I was under, this is kind of the, the thing of everything we were doing back then was how the Cold War shaped things. And, and it was back then it was very sexy to study Russian and, and, uh, to, to, uh, 
uh, to, to understand all that because that was in theory going to help you when you were looking for work. Right. And uh, there were so many people like, I don't know if you remember the lunar uh, geology PhDs and, and those people thought they were going to have a lot of work going into the seventies. And when they shut the program down, uh, I had a lot <laughs> of people who weren't in them in jobs anymore. Right. Time magazine in 1969 ran an article on how the no longer guaranteed a PhD, no longer guaranteed you a job. Yeah. So there was big tectonic shifts in that period. So, so Mike, what what you indicate you had gone to college? What were you studying in college? Uh, I I <laughs> I went into political science. Okay, and uh, my dad my dad talked me into. He said, you know, you need to do something. Right. It's not engineering. <laughs> so I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, go into law. Law is a good thing. So I said, okay, fine. So I went I went into political science, and I thought I would go to law school, and then. Like I say, Vietnam kind of threw a curveball at me. I'm trying to figure out how to work around that, and I volunteered for the the uh, uh, volunteered for the Navy Reserves. And the unit I was in was an air intelligence squadron uh, in the East Coast at an anti-submarine warfare base. And they said to me, "You really it would be helpful if you learn Russian." So I signed up for an overseas program that uh, was over in Switzerland to study Russian. History of the Communist Party, Russian political economy. Uh, there were a couple of other culture classes I had, but mainly it was like 28 hours a week of Russian. Mm -hmm. I had the cultural arrogance to go over there and think that it was being taught in English. So oh, no. I, walk, I walk into, and there's the, this leads into the lesson I'm going to try and paint the picture for you. So here I am. I had taken Spanish in high school. I was taking two years of Spanish in high in college. I walked into my first class in in Russian, and the prof walks in and says, "Monsieur Deuce was his name." He says, "Well, I'm as a student. There's a studio on the long Russe. Il faut traduire la Russe en français, la français en Russe." And I sat there and I thought to myself, "Holy Mother of God, I'm going to <laughs> learn French. I'm going to learn, learn Russian taught in French." <laughs> and I and I and, and I had taken a leave of absence from the Navy to go over there, which the Navy gave me a contract. I had to have a certain, uh, you know, grade average coming out of it. And uh, and I I sat there and I realized it was 28 hours a week of studying Russian mm -hmm. taught in French, and I knew neither. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I had, I had the two books. I had the Nina Potapova LaRusse. It was tra uh, translating Russian into English and English and, and French, er, Russian into French. And I, the, each night I would do the homework. I would translate the Russian into English and then I would translate the English into French. This is pre Google. I, uh, today, looking at this stuff with Google Translate makes me wet with envy because like <laughs> I, I just, you couldn't do that years ago. That was brutal. Yeah. But it was, you know, I took a two hour or examination in Russia and uh, Marxist political economy. And if I got into trouble, I could drop into French, which is like, how the hell am I going to survive a two hour uh, oral examination in Marxist political economy in Russian, let alone forget about the subject. So I, I, I did it. I came back and, and, uh, and I think this is, this is a spoiler alert. This is what I think engineers do. Well, as we get into these impossible situations that almost any other human being would be daunted by and crumble and we pull it off and and we we're hugely significant fast learners we can learn enormously complex uh, situations or requirements and we pull it off we make it happen mm -hmm. and that was the first time i i learned that about myself as i could do that and i came back and i uh i you know got a certificate came back and when i came back the navy uh shut the program down 
So I'd done all that work. I came back and I get discharged. Wow. So, you know, that was just the whole, then what do you do? So this whole world had turned upside down. Everyone thought Vietnam would drag on and we thought the Cold War would drag on. And all of a sudden, all the services, you could just see it. They just pulled back. And so this pipeline, all these pipelines filled with people who were going to be to certain things uh, were, you know, suddenly not there anymore. And so I had, I got this, I got discharged. It was like, okay, fine. I graduated from college. I graduated with a liberal arts degree, which like, okay, that's going to do me a lot of good. And, uh, and so I, I, first thing I got out of school was I went back doing construction and I got a job doing flat work and I, I did concrete curbs and patios and that's how I paid the, you know, paid the bills. And then meanwhile, I managed to get a job with a transit agency in Philadelphia at the time, SEPTA. And I got a job as in their engineering office, and I got hired by the guy who was the, at the time, the AGM, Phil Caldwell. And he hired me because of my construction background. And he said to me, you are the, the, you are the only person, he said, and all the people we've interviewed has any practical experience and understands construction. So I thought, oh, okay. So I, so I, I got this job and they, they put me into these different construction situations, but I didn't have any engineering background. I knew enough to be dangerous, mm-hmm. but I, like, I what, like what kinds of situations? Well, it's it's a very good situation. I have another one of my many honors in life is I managed to shut down a major thoroughfare in the city of Philadelphia right at prime time, right at the uh, right at the uh, commute hour, uh, West Gerard, Philadelphia. Well, that happens on a daily basis in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, I, I, I if civils <laughs> do it right, it doesn't happen. But the uh, uh, but in this particular situation, we were looking to do rehabilitate the streetcar stops. And so these were situations where we were pulling out about a hundred foot of girder rail and we were rebuilding it and then pouring it with concrete. And this is the long winded story of how I got into engineering. So I had done flat work and I had done a bunch of other, I poured a decent amount of concrete. I wasn't, wasn't an expert by any stretch, but I, when we, we got the concrete out in the street and we started pouring it instead of coming out of the ready mix truck as kind of a nice slurry, the stuff came out in six inch chunks. And Ooh, I looked at did it, it and I sit said, too long or was it poorly exactly, mixed? Exactly. Well, I didn't know. I, you know, I didn't know what the story was. So I looked at it and of course, you know, the stuff, the stuff would not fit in the, the, the slits we had between the girder rail and the asphalt. So these guys were taking uh, pickaxes and stuff and breaking up these six inch chunks, which are pretty much consolidated. Felt warm, by the way. <laughs> and, 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 you know, broke them up and then trying to mash them down between the girder rail. Of course, you know, we got a very high strength concrete out of that process, you can bet. <laughs> but the, uh, but the thing was that, that I, like, I knew something was wrong. And, uh, so, so anyway, so I went back and I met this guy. I had met this guy who was an engineer, uh, Dave, and I can't remember his last name, who was in the engineering office. And I was talking to him. I said, you know, I've done conky work. This did not look right. And the guy pulled the, the, uh, uh, the purchase order for the concrete and he just said ready mix concrete, of course. And so, and so they said, well, there should have been an ASTM, uh, C133 if I've got my numbers right, but it's like C33 or C133, one of the two of them. Um, it should, there, the specification for ready mix, he said, this thing should have been ordered for the, uh, by the ASTM ready mix spec. And he said, you should have done this and slump test and you should have done that. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And it was that point, it was like the clouds parted. And, and, you know, the, the dove came down and, and, the, you know, they said, this is the way. And I thought to myself, damn, you know, and what struck me about it was that, that engineers knew everything. It seemed like, like, you know, God 
had anointed them on leaving engineering schools. And I just, somebody coming out of the liberal arts area who had worked in construction and knew about the, the practical aspects about doing block work or, you know, scaffolding or flat work or, or doing low, you know, low, you know, curb work or form work along that line, finishing, uh, that type of stuff to, to suddenly talk to somebody who could talk about a spec and understood this and everything. I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's what's missing. Mm-hmm. And so I said to myself, I've got to become an engineer. By this point, I was 23. Uh, and I had been working a couple of years. I was married. Uh, and, and it was just, I'd gotten out with a liberal arts degree. So when I looked at, at that point to try and get into engineering, everybody said to me, you need a second major. And, um, uh, and you're going to do it at night and welcome to seven years. Wow. And and so I thought to myself, God, you know, I do not want to wait seven years. So at that point, I, I managed to get a hold of a reference from a, a – they were just starting to do this program where they were allowing liberal arts candidates to retread into, uh, uh, into engineering degrees. And uh, San Jose State and San Jose, California had just started the program a couple of years before that. So I went out there and uh, initially they looked at my math background, which I, I didn't do any math in college. And they looked at my high school math and they said, you are you are not going to survive. Mm-hmm. But then they looked at my my Russian certificate and they said you are going to survive <laughs> so they so the guy who so schultz was tom schultz was the guy's name so he he said he said well here's the deal he says we're you're going to take graduate classes in parallel with your underlying engineering core and he said the rationale for why we can do this is is that uh, you're going to have to do all this at, at graduate level grade requirements, which means that I had to take all the engineering core classes I had never taken that normally the undergraduates get to do at, at 2.0 or 1.9 or 1.5 or whatever they are, barely getting it through. Mm-hmm. And they, they graduate like, you know, the art department was very proud of itself that they were the average departmental GPA for, um, seniors graduating was something like 2.15 and they were proud of that right. and the dean the dean of the engineering school the civil group was said that it was their intent to drive it down further so it just was this was and i looked at this i thought how in god's name am i going to actually get through the undergraduate and the parallel so i wound up in my first two semesters in engineering school taking uh calculus Static, strength of materials, elementary structures, and a graduate level design class and did that in one semester. Wow. So I did everything that was theoretically four to five semesters worth of work, telescoped into one. And oh, by the way, you've got to get B or better in those classes. <laughs> and, and everyone I told said this to me was just, just really forget it. Right. The guy who did the, uh, the guy who did the statics class. And this was typical of the three or four of the classes. Bill Venuti came into class and he said, uh, he said, uh, there were about, and, and the civils at San Jose, the freshman class were typically a thousand people. And we typically have a thousand. We were the largest major in the engineering school and we graduated the, the second smallest. Uh, senior class. We graduated about 20 each year. So we went from a thousand plus freshmen to 20 seniors. Okay. My goodness. And then the average time to entrant, time to degree was seven years. So the only one that was worse than us was the chemies. The chemies would, would graduate 
about 15 people, 10 to 15, and theirs was sometimes six to eight years to uh, to get out. Uh, the double E's we get out in four years, which I was envious as hell about. But the, <laughs> the thing is that, that, you know, you would the civils, you would go into the freshman year, the first two years, you wouldn't get into the engineering curriculum, but the junior year, you'd get into it. You'd do static sometimes in junior year. And the prof would walk in, and there'd be like 60 to 80 people in the class. And he'd go in, and he'd say, okay, people. He says, I'm going to give one A, two Bs, three Cs, and the rest of you are going to fail. And he'd stand there and look at everybody. Wow. He'd say, he'd say why are you still here? And so then he'd walk. It was like paper chase. It was like that John uh, Houseman in paper chase. He walked up down the aisle, and he said, what about you? Do you want to fail? Why are you here? You know, and it was <laughs> torment and, and bit by bit, you know, he'd get about a third of the class, half of the class to go. And he said, okay, still too many of you. So he'd, he'd go, he'd go around further and he spent literally the first class pushing as hard as he could to get that class whittled down into about 15 people. And, <laughs> and he finally got that. And just, that was one of about four like that. They had Laurel, who's the indeterminate structures uh, prof. He had people in his class who had been taking it in some cases for 10 to 15 years. We're still trying to get through with a passing grade on indeterminate structures. I mean, it just was, uh, this was, you guys were talking a couple of weeks ago or, you know, what engineering school was like and what was it designed like. Right. I mean, right. to, to hear them talk today about a kinder, gentler engineering school and we want to make it so people can get through. I'm going like, oh my God, there must be, you know, all these people out there that are rolling over in a grave if they've survived engineering school from the sixties or seventies in that regard. Cause it was just brutal. Yeah. And I, I survived that, but I, I, I got into it. And I really enjoyed it. I loved structures. Uh, I did soils back then. It's now called geotechnical. Uh, we had construction engineering then. Now it's called construction management. Uh, the really, the, you know, the core curriculum was unfortunately pretty much the same then that it is today, which is a, a whole issue with civils in terms of identity crisis for civil engineering, particularly on the construction side. What's the value the profession's offering today? Because the paraprofessionals are pretty much delivering what the engineers could deliver 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's, the, the you know, at the time I got out, there was huge changes coming through on the engineering side because the, the first waves of automation were coming through. Uh, I got out graduated in the 75 time frame and right at that time frame was when strudel came out anybody here heard of strudel not uh, the non-edible kind correct it's a it was georgia tech it was a it's wiki is a nice article about it strudel was the first real mass production or mass applicability the structural design uh application and it caught the industry off guard uh, I went for an interview with a county highway department right outside of San Jose. And I had uh, uh, the, the guy I was interviewing with was having this like, what are you here for? And I said, well, they they had posted openings and I passed the screen and I'm here for the, uh, uh, you know, I'm here for the interview. And the guy said, what are you here for? And finally, after about 15, 20 minutes of this back and forth, he said to me, I have 30 engineers in my highway department. This week, I'm laying off 28. So he says, what the hell am I hiring you for? I said, I don't know, you know, but it just was, it was really, it was a for, for a harbinger of things to come that, you know, you had the big 
uh, engineering firms, the Bechtels, the Floors, the Santa Fe's, you know, the Dravos, the Davy McKees, all the big fall and flag engineering firms had, they were up in the 20 to 50,000 engineer range or, you know, engineers and professionals. And those, those people were just lopped off at the, at the roots in the next decade with all as a result of strudel. Part of it, part of it was the economics. Uh, the U.S. was a powerhouse coming into the 60s with overseas. If you look at the, like Aramco in Saudi Arabia and you look at overseas and the, uh, particularly the, 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 the Mideast and the oil in Saudi Arabia. Okay. So it wasn't just technical. It was the macroeconomic issues that the U.S. was confronted with in the 70s. Exactly. Exactly. And that's very good. That's, that's part of the theme I'm trying to, to, to make here is that if you look at the different professions, civils went through a, a, a curve, a maturity curve, and has peaked already as a profession, whereas certain other professions like the mechanical engineers peaked probably, you know, maybe some number of years after the civils and the electricals right now are still with computer systems and other types of controls. You guys are still peaking, you know. Well, would you say that and maybe as kind of a necessary information for your uh – for your experiences that maybe a lot of other industries may not have would be civil's primarily a public sector business. Would you say that? Yes. So as you have ebbs and flows and primarily ebbs over the past 30 years in public sector spending, that has, those are the dominating factors. Whereas in, you know, electrical and chemical and, you know, a lot more private sector dominated industries, I think, those tend they tend not to follow the public sector and taxpayer uh, taxpayer proclivities like the way yeah. civil engineering would. Yeah, you if you're civil and you work in airports, you you can't you can't. It's not like you know I was Carmen or I somebody else like yourself, Brian. If I understand what your 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 different projects are, Jeff, some of the work you were doing in the machine shop. I mean, you guys could play with things, and you didn't need a billion dollars behind you to make it happen. You know, if, if, if I, if I'm a geotechnical and my specialty is tunnels, then I, I have a certain exactly. threshold. I have a certain threshold to do that job. And, and that's nothing wrong with that. But you as a young person need to understand that, particularly before you may drop 60 to 80 grand a year for a degree in engineering out of Cornell or Rensselaer or some, or MIT. You know, you, you really need to look at like, how marketable am I going to be coming out of this thing, given which one? Well, hasn't that been the lesson of the past 30 years, which is, you know, previously you could specialize in something and believe at least for a couple of years that that's what you would do. Whereas the reality, and I think it's really been beat into my generation, at least it was by my parents, is, listen, whatever plan you think you have when you graduate school – adapt as quickly as possible because that's probably not what you're going to end up doing. I I agree and I think you you you're wise to follow that. I think the Well, but it's it's to- it's not my lesson. It's a lesson that was basically something my parents gotcha. and, who are now retired have now explained to me, you know, their parents were a generation where you went to work at a company and could work there for 30 years. Right. Whereas their generation were sold that and then ended up working for five different companies. Brian, if you look at my family's experience, and I think my father and his father were exactly that. 
Uh, and, and the lesson in that that my grandfather took out of it was that he, he messed up badly by swapping right at that peak time in the 1920s and he paid for it the rest of his life. My father took that lesson and said, I'm never going to leave Philco. And then all of a sudden Philco got sold out from underneath him to Ford. And then it was like, uh, 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 what does he do? And, and he, he struggled with trying to figure out how to adapt, but he had put everything in that, that mm-hmm. life. And, uh, you know, I, my experience as a young person, and, and, and please stop me if, if you want to talk about something parallel, that was almost every organization I worked for in the first 15 years of my career went out of existence about a year after I left them. I, <laughs> uh, I went to work for SEPTA in Philadelphia, and everyone said to me, oh, it's a government job. It'll be there forever. In the mid-1970s, they went into a prolonged labor dispute that lasted like something in the range of about five months. And everyone – and I had left by then – Everyone who was still there after me and said, oh, you know, you're crazy. They wound up getting laid off. So they were gone. So then I go through engineering school and I go to work for a utility out in the West Coast, Pacific Gas and Electric on one of their geothermals, working in the general construction group for this called GC Station. We were doing a geothermals. I left them in 78. And, uh, and, and, but they went into a downturn and with deregulation in the 1981 timeframe, the whole general construction group for PG&E got laid off. Everybody got laid off. It was catastrophic. They, they laid off in excess and, and that was, that 10 was, or 15 people. And, you know, 10, 10, it's 10, something, it's something that will be lost in our current, you know, I, I, if I would say, let's assume that I understand the demographics of our listeners, our younger listeners are not going to understand how shocking that was. That is going to be a hey. That just happens, right? That's that's right. normal fact of life. Companies go under, you know, or you know, jobs go away. That wasn't the way things used to be. No, no, it, it was. It, shoot, you're working for a utility, you know. The thinking on that was people people will will starve before they'll go without their lights. Then it was lights. Now it's internet, you know. But the but now I I know you know here's a transit agency folding and and basically dissolving itself and rebooting five months later everybody's going new hand utility company very you know worked through the depression everybody worked through the depression which was far worse in 1930s than 1981 but they you know they laid off the group it was shocking so you know that that just tremendous upheaval. Uh, went through. So I, I, I got out of, I got out of engineering school in 75 and it was a big downturn. It was a lot of, of, that was back when gas had first climbed up from. So it's the era, it's the era of stagflation. Well, it, it wasn't quite that bad. But here in mind, keep in mind what you're talking about. Think about having for decades bought gas for 10 or 12 cents a gallon. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I remember as a young person in, uh, 70 time frame, 70, 71, I was buying, I don't know why I have it in my burn in my brain, but it was buying Sunoco grade 190 for 15 cents a gallon. And then suddenly it jumped up to 35 cents. And this was like the summer of 73. And everybody was going like, oh my God, you know, gas had been 10 cents a gallon for decades. And, and suddenly it was like, oh my God, gas is 35 cents. And then within a year, it went to a buck. It stayed at a buck. Uh, it didn't go to the. It didn't go to the next range of the hyperinflation. This is where the Mastercard. You guys were talking a couple of weeks ago about the Mastercard mortgage 
and the the money market fund we were getting more money in your money market fund than the visa right. that was in the 78 to 81 time frame that uh, large scale inflation the US was going through but the uh, the first bout of that was the 73 74 time frame was when we had the gas rationing on the west coast we had the odd and even license plates and we went through all that but that was just really the, the you know all those changes just was really something it was fun to drive to the west coast before they had speed limits so I was I was driving across uh, forty through New Mexico and Arizona, and, and there was no speed limits. Driving through California, speed limit there were no speed limits on the California interstates in seventy three. Prior to uh, I guess it was January one seventy four when they put the, the the speed limit on Interstate five. So it was fun fun time to drive in that <laughs> period of time. Right. So, so I what I was getting to in terms of 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 what that was like was civil had been always had been pretty good work. You could get work, but in in the fall of seventy five when I graduated, there was uh, chemis. There were about fifteen chemis, and each chemi had at least three job offers, and some had more. Okay, which about, I, I have to insert the obligatory. Chemies sure. are still unicorns, as far as I'm concerned. Well, <laughs> they, they like do to, not exist. I'd like to talk to you about that because I worked with chemies. I did a lot of chemi work with Dow Chemical and Procter and Gamble. Oh, I, I know tons of, of chem- I know tons of chemies, but they don't talk to us. So they don't. I'll talk no. to you. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the city with 3M. I'm in the chemi capital of the planet. It's, okay. It's but they don't exist. Okay. <laughs> I, I had a couple of really good friends in in in. Uh, grad school that were chemis. So they're really good people to have around when you're short of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the electricals electricals we had about San Jose we had about I I think we had something in the range of two fifty to four hundred electricals and they all had at least two job offers type of thing. And then there was about a hundred mechanicals and they all had at least one job offer and several guys had two or three job offers. And then there was 25 civils and there was one job offer for the whole class. And I was the first one that had the job offer. And the only guy that had the job offer up to almost the day of the graduation. So it was just kind of like that type of a skew in terms of, of what the, uh, uh, what the job was like. And I mean, it was really tough to try and figure out which way to go. Cause one of the, actually I had two job offers. One was to go to Saudi Arabia with a geotechnical firm and do work over there, which the wife was not crazy about. And then the other one was go to work for the uh, the utility up in, in uh, on the geothermal plants. So, but there was nothing else that I really could have uh, I could have done. I toyed with the idea of going to grad school because I loved I, I really loved soils, and my uh, my prof really wanted me to go for my doctorate. My wife put her foot down and said no way. <laughs> so, so I, I kind of that's what got me into. Into engineering, it was a backdoor. I got out with two years. I did it a brutal forced march uh, in terms of uh, overlapping, uh, you know, overlapping the uh, uh, requirements and parallel tracking. And I still got out with a pretty good GPA. Surprise! I survived and and I made it happen. And uh, so I I think that I I just I loved engineering because it was suddenly I looked at. And the thing about the conceit of being a civil is you look at almost anything and you realize how it works. You know, like you look at a structure, you look at a, I remember walking around looking at garage ports, you're like, oh, that's a post and frame construction. Gee, that's why they did that. Wow. That's why they ran the, uh, you know, that's why they ran the, uh, 
uh, you know, the drainage ditch this way. So I just, uh, you know, I, I, everything I touched, I loved. I took surveying, I did concrete design. All of a sudden, now I understood why the crap we were trying to lay on the street didn't work back in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, I did, I did route layouts and surveying. I did property surveys. I did topo maps. I did all that stuff and that was fun. I did, I did a couple of weeks worth of surveying. This is another interesting story. I spent, we were laying out a subdivision in the Santa Cruz mountains south of San Jose in the, and these are California. They call them foothills in California, but they're mountains anywhere in the rest of the country, short of the Rockies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but they, uh, but, but we were there and this other guy and I had spent about three weeks trying to run a control line in. And lay out and, and, and stake out this subdivision. And there was this one leg of the line we were trying to do, which was about a 4,000 foot traverse across this canyon. And no matter what we did, we couldn't close the traverse to met the standards for the subdivision. So we were there just grinding through it. And I remember the guy shows up and he had one of the very first HP distance meters and he pulls it out and bang, within 30 minutes, we closed to a second order. Uh, which I think we had to do second order if my memory serves me correctly, but we, we had shot this single 4,000 foot segment with this HP distance meter. Yeah. Like, Mike, would you explain what uh, closing a traverse is for everybody else? Yeah. Uh, when you're, when you're surveying in, you, you're going to do a circuit. And, and so in other words, and depending on the nature of what you're doing, uh, the analogy is similar to a structure. You would do cross legs, or other, you're increasing the confidence you've got that the end location where you stake out a property corner is accurate to within several hundredths of a foot. And so therefore you, you don't, you don't go out and back on the same line. You go out one way and, and you could, it's like taking a truss and laying it on the ground and you survey the elements of the truss. You, and I'm dating myself by doing this, but, but that's what the, that's what the, uh, USGS and US Geological Survey and the other surveyors, that's what we did to try and nail down, uh, property corners when we were really shooting into difficult areas. I get, <laughs> today I see people going around, I see these one man survey parties going around where they've got the, uh, the theodolite sitting up there. And everything's radio controlled and the guy's got the GPS pogo stick in his hand. And everywhere he goes, the theodolite swivels to find him. And I go like, Oh my God, you know, it's just, it's like you, you just get, you just get envious. You look at this thing, how it, how it works today. I mean, you're looking at a crew that years ago would be three, four, five people running a survey group and you see a guy, you know, one theodolite and he's running around with a GPS thing and, and the theodolite's tracking them both both in plane and profile. So he drops down, the theodolite looks down. I mean, it's just staggering. I watched this guy do a topo map of this, this 50 acre parcel. And it was stupefying to, to watch that happen. So that's, that's the, that's the amazing thing about the technology. Yeah. So Mike, you graduated in 1975 uh, with your master's degree and then had spent some time uh, on the West coast and so about what time did those jobs shut down? Well, California uh, really hit, started hitting it hard in the 70s. Uh, the California Water Project was shutting down, which was a big driver. The Bureau of Reclamation had finished up the cal- – there were several competing big water projects on the West Coast. You had the Bureau of Reclamation. Right. 
which was its own program, Kalinga and, and some of the other big canal projects. Then you had the state water project, which was itself also shutting down. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to conceive of these things today. You were talking, Brian, about uh, some of the, uh, you know, what it was like for those generations, because this had been decades of work. I mean, like the Burek mm-hmm. project in the Valley, the Central Valley project, CVP, that thing had been 40, 50 years. And so here was this constant amount of work, and suddenly this like this behemoth screeching to a halt. You're done. State Water Project uh, shut down. Uh, Salt River Project in in uh, in New Mexico, or actually Arizona. And so you had these these big projects. Los Angeles um, had uh, you know they'd already done the Colorado River, Colorado River Aqueduct, but there were some other aqueducts they did uh, filling that in. But the, the highways, the big highway projects, uh, they had finished up. Uh, Interstate uh, 680 and um, 101, 680, 280 got finished in the Bay Area, in the San Jose, San Francisco area. Those interstates all kind of wrapped up in the 73 to 75 time frame. They finished the interstate from San Francisco around back up to Oakland mm-hmm. uh, by that time frame. So that work had finished up. So there was this just huge fall off of work that was being done. In that, and and so for those of us that were trying to get work in that time frame, you would find out that at the end there were ten. You know, you were looking for the job, and there'd be ten people uh, applying with you, and you'd find out, you know, four of them were laid off Bechtel bridge engineers. You know, these guys would have twenty, thirty years experience, and you were a young engineer with a couple of years under your belt. There was just no way you could compete. That's one of the reasons why I probably went into the construction side because not too many people were comfortable going into that area, whereas everybody, you know, felt really comfortable doing the the design work or structural work in that regard. It wasn't nearly as much uh, competition in that side as it was, but it was very, very difficult. I mentioned the drop off in some of the numbers. Bechtel in particular was, was in the 70s, you know, late 70s, almost up to 50,000 engineers, and they dropped down at one point in the 80s into the low teens, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. a thousand engineers. Floors shut down, uh, you know. And were these were these primarily civil? Mix of disciplines. I mean, you know, Bechtel was a mix of of with their Bechtel had different divisions: Bechtel Power, Bechtel Hydro, Bechtel Civil. And it depended on what the division was. Bechtel Civil obviously had more civil work, civil engineers. Bechtel Power was predominantly electrical. Uh, I have to – can I can I shift gears at this point, tell one of my engineering jokes? Sure. Go Absolutely. For it. One of the things I, I got out and, and back then there was some very definitive uh, ideas about civils and your, your pecking order relative to the rest of the world. And when I showed up at my – first job at Pacific Gas and Electric, I went into Ray Cooper, who was the resident engineer, and Ray said to me, Mike, and he was an electrical, and he, and he pointed to a, 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 a light switch at the end of the door. He says, hey, Mike, he says, I understand you think you know what you're doing. You're a young engineer. You have it, you know, you're graduate civil. You had all this good stuff. He says, but you really need to understand that where your place in the world is. And I was like, okay. So he pointed this thing and he says, to a control engineer, that's a server, servo. You can tell my slip, it's a server. To a control engineer, that's a servo. To an electrical engineer, that's a light switch. To a mechanical engineer, that's a lever. And do you know as a civil engineer, do you know what that is to you, Mike? That's magic. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just this, this, you know, it's like, uh, you know, type of thing. The one one that I loved about PG&E, because we had, you know, it's you really – 
when you work for organizations or institutions or engineering bureaucracies, you really get a sense of, of, of who's got the power and how, how the pecking order and who can say things and who can't. And, and it was quite an eye opener to me working in that organization. But the guy who was the superintendent of general construction would get up there. And this guy was a non-engineer managing an engineering organization, which is in itself was interesting to do. And this guy's name was Maxfield. And he got up there and he said, uh, he says, I only need three people to build a power plant. I only need three people. And he said, uh, I need a, a, a damn good electrical who can also do startup. And uh, so he said, that's one. And then two, he says, I need a damn good mechanical who can also do, and I forget exactly what the other one was that he had, but maybe it was like th- the, the cooling tower balance or they could do the heat balance as well as the mechanical, the plumbing and everything like that. And he said, I need a really good camp cook who can double as a civil. <laughs> and that was just that was the, that was the so so that was just kind of the, the the world was just trying to was figure out like which end was up the, the 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 regulations were changing the epa was coming out with the clean you know the ramp up of the the uh, the super fund sites some of the circla and some of the other i probably have the nomenclature wrong but there was some stuff coming up in the late 70s Going into the the eighties, I did do a lot of work. I I did some. I had fun times. I did some work with the clean water program. You don't get a lot of publicity for the clean water program in the seventies, but that kept a lot of engineers working mm-hmm. in the seventies going into the eighties, and that was where I first got into really understanding like how I started understanding how projects get over designed. Uh, EPA had a thing where they were they were there were so many. So much technology they were buying for their water treatment and water, uh, either raw water or sewage treatment plants. They came up with a term called best available technology or BAT. And, and so what they tried to do was look at the technology being, uh, recommended and try to scale that back to a, a level that was adequate, like an adequate technology level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was a, a big part of some of the work that I did in that time frame, But the, that was amazing in terms of the amount of money that the EPA put into that from the 70s going into the 80s. And then that program wrapped up again by the end of the 70s. By 80, pretty much most, I think most of the cities had achieved what their legislatively mandated milestones were. So that was like a cliff falling off in terms of uh, that work being done. We had the scale back of the nuclear uh, in terms of that industry. So the the nature of the industry changed enormously going into the 1980s and and so many of the drivers and so many of the opportunities for what was there weren't there going into the 1980s right so mike how did you adapt i mean you from 75 to 80 things are starting to stumble in the civil world so what did you do how did you adapt i I gasped. <laughs> I uh, I uh, went started going out into the field. Uh, there was less and less work in the Bay Area, and I went to work for uh, a constru- contractor I was working for was in a retrenchment mode, mm-hmm. and I wound up taking a job in New Mexico to try and keep the job going, keep the work going, and uh, that that was interesting doing work out there with the Bureau of Reclamation and the. Uh, uh, out in the field with working with the Navajo tribe was an interesting exposure for me. I'd never culturally 
was was very different. Very, you know, the, started getting into the training issues with working with people who weren't necessarily used to working traditional construction. So there was a variety of problems that we had to deal with, particularly with training labor forces and getting people to understand what the job was. And we were there on a hard money contract. Um, it was a very it was a very tough environment to uh, uh, you know work with. The guy that I worked for was an electrical contractor who had really come up and, and and the hard way. And he got drunk one time at a Christmas party, and we were talking about what the industry was like in the 50s. And it was a different world. In the 1950s, when they were bidding this work out in the West Coast, every third bid, they were the only bidder. And you think about that. Average cost markups that they got for overhead and profit was in the 40 to 50% range. So, you know, you think about the type of money they were making in that period. And these guys came out of the 50s and the 60s and go into the 70s where, you know, our capture ratios were maybe one in 10. We were getting markups on the work in the range of 10%. Mm -hmm. So you talk about sea changes and everything. The economics was just this was a competitiveness that these older firms couldn't match. There were quite a few old line construction firms in the Bay Area that went that went belly up. Uh, in the 1980s, they couldn't survive. They couldn't handle. They couldn't. They couldn't handle the competitiveness of the work. Right. So coming back, how did I survive? I was down in New Mexico. I was. Tr- we were trying to break into more of this bureau reclamation work. That was not working. We were getting to be too expensive. Uh, the, the contractor that I worked for when I first came on board with him, he had five. He was. He was a general contractor. We had five engineers on staff. There were a couple of mechanicals, a couple of electricals. I was the only civil, and we did everything. We did mixed design, survey work. I did asphalt. I did a bunch of the other. I did shoring. I did, I did miscellaneous metal design. I did, I did forms and some other things. By the early to mid nineteen eighties, the union, the union shop, pretty much had been broken up in the West Coast, and they were open shop. Uh, most of the subs by that point, most of the things that were bread and butter work that the civils did had gone away. Nobody, nobody in the civil end did concrete mix anymore. Pretty much that was all had been wired down by the ready mix operation. So a lot of the work that civils did went away. A lot of the work the electricals did in terms of some of their specific designs or field design for things went away. So I, I, I looked around. I thought to myself, good Lord, by that point, I had my PE. And everyone said to me, oh, you got a PE, you know, that you'll always eat, you'll always work. And it's like, I could, I came back, I couldn't get any work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, I went to law school and, uh, I went to law school for a year and, uh, and tried that to, well, I'll be a, a law, I'll go into law school. And I, uh, uh, wound up, uh, being in law school for a year and, and really enjoyed it. I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun. I did not have a taste for, for procedure. Uh, law breaks down into two, fundamentally two groups, substance and procedure. I love contracts. Uh, I didn't like torts. Uh, I got into a lot of arguments with my tort prof who talked about, you know, you're in a hospital and the ceiling falls down and you sue the, uh, uh, you sue the building code. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. It doesn't quite work that way, <laughs> you know. So, you know, but, uh, but, I, but I had a great time. Uh, studying contracts, the guy uh, Broussard, the guy studied under Golden Gate, turned out later on to become a Supreme Court justice in the state of California. So I've always been lucky; I was able to meet certain people. Sure. So I did that, and I I didn't, 
you know, at that point we had our second child and just the wife said to me, I can't, we can't do this. You can't keep going to law school. And at that point I was ready to give that up as well. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really heartily incur, uh, encourage anybody who's out there, who's a young engineer. Uh, if you really want to have a great asset in your, in your, in your package is to do legal writing and research. Uh, I'll get into a little bit when we talk further on about my career with the agencies. But uh, part of the reason why I think I was successful as an engineer working in organizations is that I had been exposed to that process about understanding precedents, understanding authority, understand, being able to analyze the facts, understanding the issues and make recommendations. That's not something that's taught in engineering school. Mm-hmm. Maybe now, but it wasn't then. I don't, I don't think it still is. But it was a very, very uh, well worth, uh, well worth it. Even if you go in and grab that, the other one I would hardly recommend is contracts. If you can get it at all, is get get you know, one semester of contracts under your belt. It really will pay for you. You will understand things. I wound up coming out of that, and I couldn't get work anywhere. So I I sold myself as a consultant, mm-hmm. and I worked for about eight years uh, in the consulting business. And I basically did. What I would call now construction management consulting, but back then we didn't have construction management as a, as an industry in the West Coast became popular with O'Brien Kreitzberg popularized it on the uh, West Coast. I don't know about the East Coast, but it was about 86 to 90 in that range when CM became a brand on its own. And so this was 79 to 87. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I ran my own business for eight years and I found out how woefully uh, <laughs> educated engineers are just because you're an engineer doesn't mean you can uh, uh, you can run a business and oh my god did I did I get it you know you know what they say uh, you think education is expensive wait till you try ignorance <laughs> right but but you know engineers God bless us we think we we it's a conceit and my wife works in the legal industry and it, and she you know lawyers drive her crazy anybody who's a highly educated professional thinks they know the other guy's job you know. Uh, whether it's a lawyer or an engineer or doc- doctors are, are kind of in that range as well, too. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I learned a lot, uh, made a lot of mistakes, but had a lot of uh, fun, uh, you know, running my own business, had a plane for a while, flew, did some other things with it, spent a lot of money, earned a lot of money, lost a lot of money. Right. I, I had a, uh, I wound up having two uh, contractors go bankrupt on me. And I was holding about a quarter, they was holding about a quarter million a piece on me receivables. Right. And I wound up uh, getting out. I took a horrific bath in terms of uh, liquidating the uh, the company and really it was tough. This is the thing everyone talks about in terms of being a business. It's exciting. It's great. But the downside of it is, is that, you know, you, you, you get caught in a grinder. You can't get out. You've got, uh, uh, you know, you, you're not tuned to knowing when to pull the plug and get out. You're not really tuned to that. And, uh, I, you know, and, and your family pays for those decisions. Your family really uh, is the one that takes the hit for this type of stuff. And my family was very, uh, was involved, uh, caught in that crosshair as well. Sure. So I, I got up into the mid eighties and at one point it got 86 was a particularly bad year in terms of the West coast. And uh, I wound up in the 85 time frame. Uh, getting work in the food industry, coming back to the Midwest and working on building uh, uh, Hidden Valley Ranch salad plants in the Midwest. <laughs> and this is kind of another 
thing we were talking about in terms of downturn and what do you do as an engineer is that it, it, I could tell you my experience as a civil, that may not be your experience in your particular discipline, but there is a life cycle both for your profession as a whole, but more importantly, there's a shelf life for you as a individual. And so therefore, part of that is to look around you and look at who's the old person, who's the oldest person in the room and what are you going to do when you're that age or more important that five years later on than that. Right. And uh, that's a huge lesson. Well, I'll come back into it in a, in kind of like two or three periods differently. But but in that period, uh, I had a couple of opportunities to relocate out of California into the Midwest and to do food plant work because I, the Midwest was just booming, uh, particularly in the Indi- the Illinois and Indiana uh, areas with respect to this food processing plant, and and I missed that window. I didn't I didn't really understand what I was giving up, and I think that it's important to understand where you are in this process in terms of your your own profession and civils were struggling to try and hold on to market share, if you will, for what types of work that civil engineers did uh, in that period, as well as I think the mechanicals and electricals. I mean, look at the people today in electrical engineering who did power systems and look at the number of people doing that work today versus 30 years ago. Uh, A lot of this work that engineers did, whether you're civil or or mechanical with piping or the big one I saw a change in in my career was fire uh, fire systems, sprinkler systems used to be the mechanicals would actually PE stamp the the fire control systems. And then I saw it within the space of my uh, career go down to a a contractor uh, craft. Contractor could submit uh, shop drawings that were accepted by the fire marshal, which I never saw in my lifetime before, in my career before to that. Same with duct work. I saw duct work and all that engineering that went with that go away. It used to be a PE stamp duct work drawings and it went down into a contractor shop drawing. So a lot of changes in that period, but I didn't see, I didn't understand what I was looking at when I saw that work with the food plants in the, uh, in the mid 1980s. And so I bounced around in a couple of areas and I, and I tried to stay in the area which was really contracting. And that was uh, the Bay Area was, was from a civil point of view, just losing work on a, a year over year basis. And so I, uh, like I said, I did travel work and then it really kind of hit my low was, uh, in the 87 timeframe, I wound up selling concrete mix. I went to work for a uh, concrete ready mix operation, took a horrific cut in salary, but the wolf was at the door. I think each of us faces points in our career where the wolf is at the door and, and you really need to understand who your friends are, what your networks are, and you need to be able to, to try and pull yourself together and, and keep your family focused and keep yourself focused in terms of how to work through that. Uh, a corollary to that that I've heard from a number of people and I would pass along to the audience is that you're going to make missteps, mistakes in your career, missteps, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And almost everybody I've talked to has said that it, the average misstep takes about five years to recover from. And it's just, it's a fact of life. And it, I've made a couple of missteps in my career and those took me something in that range, three to five years to recuperate from. But I was, uh, it was an experience for me dropping back into the 87 time frame with the uh, the market. I, I went to work for a manufacturer who sold uh, concrete aggregate, and it was a specialized type of concrete aggregate. And they uh, 
and I, and I thought to myself, okay, here we go again. You know, I, what's involved? I had to learn the manufacturing process. And what I found was they didn't understand the economics of their product. And so one of the things that I did for them was I gave them a business model that helped them market their aggregate. But the downside of it was that uh, they thought they had a, about a 20 to 30% market share and they had 90. And then they turned around and took a 40% discount on the product and then they went bankrupt. <laughs> so they, uh, and, and I could see this coming and I kept trying to tell them like, you know, you're, you are heading into that brick wall at light speed right. and I don't think you want to do this. And, and, and I, and I said, goodbye, I'm out of here. And I managed, I had been working on trying to get in with another friend in one of the industrial, um, the big, you know, there were, there were a couple of, uh, uh, big industrial LK Comstock, Davy McKee, there were kind of mid-range Ikeley, there were kind of mid-range civil uh, design firms that did institutional work, IBM, Chevron, um, you know, Procter & Gamble, Dow Chemical, they kind of did that type of institutional work. But I got out about a year before they went in, before they went bankrupt. But the fun start of that is they, the economic model I gave them is what they still use today nationally. And then as part of the process, I, they redesigned it. Rather than use my product, they redesigned a couple of bridges on the Century Freeway in Los Angeles to uh, better economize along the recommendations I made. So I had some interesting experiences in that sense. Me. Coming out of that into the late 80s, I worked again for one of the mid-level Comstock engineering. And, uh, and we had institutional clients and that was, that was fun. That was, that was, that was, lot of very high pressure work. Uh, we would be uh, working, for example, like with, uh, I did a couple of Dow, uh, not Dow, well, did both Dow and Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble was a great organization to work with. It was really fun to work with them. Uh, they had some of the most really difficult projects. They were not big ones, but they were small ones, but they were huge uh, cost challenges. You know, you'd be doing a $5 million job and you know, it really was a seven and a half million and you'd have to take everything you could to whittle this thing down to fit it into the five million uh, budget. And so that those were some a number of challenges to make that happen. But that 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 ability to do cost control and that ability to to come up with with more cost effective ways. I mean, we we hit a huge we cut a huge hog on. Uh, the one aspect where we picked up, we were doing stainless steel uh, piping and we were getting killed with the price for the stainless steel piping. And it turns out that Tennessee Valley Authority or Tennessee TVA in, in Tennessee had a big nuclear power plant project they were shutting down and they were selling off stainless surplus stainless steel. And we were able to get the project's complete size we had to go with a larger size because it wasn't the size they wanted wasn't available but we got such a good deal in it that PNG said fine we'll take it right. but uh but we were able to get surplus stainless steel piping out of TVA for like 10 or 15 cents on a dollar and suddenly that made the project well right and right. so you know we had a variety of other things we were doing which were just a lot of fun work PG does PNG will do these jobs with plant shuts down where you got 7 days do a plant turnaround. And so you'll be planning up for a whole year how to do the plant 
and do the upgrades. And so, you know, you'll pre-assemble the, the valving, you'll pre-assemble this, you'll, you'll do, uh, you'll, you know, we did testing of the control systems. We had 130 control points on this production process. And so we did a completely simulated, uh, layout. We rented a warehouse and laid out all the valves. And this was back in the old Allen Bradley PLC six days, if I'm dating myself or something like that. And so we had to do all the control language. We did a simulated layout of all the valves and everything in this warehouse to make, to try to do as much coding as we could and everything else we needed to an assembly before we actually got to the point of the, of the, of the plant being shut down. Mm-hmm. So those were just tremendous. Again, very intensive planning. One of the things, again, over and over again, I, I find people who I work with or young people I'll, I'll work with and I'll try to tell them here, you know, you need to focus on your planning skills. You need to be able to come up with, uh, one of the things which came out of that period in the 80s uh, was an emphasis on process and deliverables and this, this uh, the rise of what I would call the modern approach to, to civil engineering contracting. And that was uh, we did something unheard of at that point in civils, which we did lump sum uh or what we called hard dollar engineering contracting, where you would you would do most of the time the engineers would do a percent fee or they would do cost reimbursable. You would you would you know whatever amount of hours it would take, but we were forced to the economics of it to do some very complex engineering for process for steel fabric or for steel processing or for chemical plants. Dow, Procter and Gamble, Chevron, IBM, all wanted. Uh, lump sum engineering. And that was, that's hair raising to be able to, to manage your work and deliver uh, in that, in that area. And, and, and that means you've got to understand process. It means you have to understand deliverables. If you can't map out the project in terms of products that help you to understand that you're meeting your milestones that give you visibility in the process, you are not going to do well. And I think that's, that's a skill set that uh, the schools don't give you and the engineers have to learn that out in the field. Mm-hmm. That was where I really learned that. That's the only way we were able to do the cost control for the work that we did in that period. One of the things which, again, from a viewpoint of increasing your your options in terms of knowing what to do is is hanging around the, guy, the people that are selling the work. And one of the things that, that you need to understand, become familiar with commercial terms and commercial aspects in terms of pricing of the work so that you can be not only out in the field doing the work, but you can also join the sales team to go in and, and talk to the customer. When the customer is sees somebody in front of them who's got a lot of technical experience and can talk really deep about project execution or something else, uh, that that works, That that is good, that leverages you. So uh, I was involved in a lot of work with this with Comstock, and we were uh, we were getting squeezed by the two companies, several companies, and we were most of the the people who probably work today, if they're familiar with multiplier, multiplier is the relationship between price and cost. So in other words, uh, uh, if I incur a dollar a cost in building a job, the price may be. A dollar fifty, if I can draw that analogy, or Jeff, in your world, like the widget cost you a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and you sell it for one hundred and fifty. So a multiplier is something that converts price to cost. Price does not equal cost, right? Price equals cost plus profit, just very, very crudely. Right. So therefore, a multiplier is simply the relationship between price and cost. So a, a widget that you sell for uh, 
$200 or $300 that cost you $100 to make has a multiplier of 2 to 3, you know, 2.0 to 3.0, somewhere in that range, which means that, you know, $1 for every, you know, for $1 cost, you've got $2 in sales, $2 in price, okay? So I've most people probably out there listening today who are familiar with the multiplier concept are probably working on multipliers in the range of 2.5 to 3.5, Okay. I would wager most people out there are in that range. You can run a little side bet with everybody. Does anybody got a multiplier that, that isn't in the range Mike's talking about? But the, we were working in this time period with, with two of the firms. We were down in the one, six, seven range. Okay. Our, our, uh, our payroll and overheads were up in the one, six, two. We were working on like a three to 4% margin. If you netted everything out cost versus profit. So we were just, and then the two companies we were working with, which I don't want to name because of they're still out there, they were shaving us one point every year. They were talking about like, well, this year you were one point six seven, and next year you're going to be one point six six. We just you can't survive with that type of an environment. And sure enough, the 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 companies uh, merged in the eighty nine. 90 timeframe Comstock merged with Davy McKee and Trevo. Uh, they, those different fir- firms merged together because the institutional clients that we're working for, were just squeezing them. And this is the next point we're talking about is if you're in, in an engineer and you're in an area where you're trying to survive on a cost basis, where strictly the reason why you get, I get the job, Jeff, instead of you is, is strictly because I've got a multiplier that's a shade of a point lower than yours. Mm-hmm. You're, you're working yourself into a funnel that's not going to have a happy ending. So I think that part of that is to try and always keep yourself on the value added side of where the, 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 uh, you know, the, the services are and not get into the point where you're strictly competing on a, uh, a price basis. Cause that's the company that I was working for. Comstock at that point, Comstock Engineering was trying to survive on a price basis and they couldn't do it. And they submerged at that point. It became another, a second round of fallen flag. Uh, engineering firms in the 90s. So the next question is you would ask is what do I do after that? Well, I, I couldn't. It was things at Comstock were really bad. We had, you talk about fringe benefits. Uh, we had, we didn't have a dental plan. We had a dentist who, uh, uh, who agreed in his office to service the whole, we had a hundred engineers in the office and we had one dental office that would accept our dentist plan. So, uh, you know, the wife said to me, this is not going to work. We've got three kids. Two of them are going into orthodontics and you better find something. So I just thought to myself, I was, I was turning 40 at this point. And it's like, you know, I was, you, you as a young person, you know, it isn't just downturns when you're 20 or downturns when you're 30. It's also like where you are in your career. If you're getting into your early 40s and you haven't gotten traction, either in terms of a management position or you really haven't been able to, to put a consistent amount of money away or ultimately you don't have any benefits and you've got family, you're really faced with some really tough choices in that interval because you can't keep going. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, that you know, is to understand those lifestyle choices for the careers you're choosing and for the industry and for the location. Those are all those factors that go together. And uh, I looked around and I thought, where I was just, this is not sustainable. And I decided at that point I, I was going to go get a government job because I, I'd done some research and found, Hey, they have, they have fringe benefits. Oh my God, they have a pension. You know, it's like, Hey, I'm there. 
And uh, I thought to myself, I don't know mentally if I'm really there, if I can handle it. But I figured to myself, I don't care if they tell me to stand in the corner and spin 30 times in between writing down each word. Uh, if if this is what it's going to take to basically, you know, get me a decent job and have, you know, benefits for my family. And they've suffered enough trying to keep me going through engineering. That's what I'm going to do. And the irony is that I went to one of the agencies in the Bay Area was BART. And they were going through a big $2 billion expansion at that point. Doesn't sound like much now, $2 billion, but it was big bucks in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, and I tried to get on as part of the regular engineering group, and I couldn't get in. I didn't have enough I didn't have enough of a network. And this is another lesson in terms of as you get older and you get more specialized and you're trying to get in is the type of network you can build around organizations such that if somebody says, hey, you know, they're hiring hiring uh, design managers over for this particular project on this agency. Who do you know that can get you in there? Uh, somebody was talking earlier about LinkedIn, and I've had some surprising recruiting and some surprising job opportunities open up to me because of LinkedIn. And ultimately, my family, even my kids, uh, use LinkedIn quite a bit to uh, to get uh, insights into things. So the, the face of how that networking changes uh, and how that actually works. But I, I went in there and I wanted to do you know regular engineering job and they didn't have anything available. They instead offered me a job in the contracting group. And what appealed to them was the fact I had the law background, the law school background mm-hmm. that I did. Mm-hmm. So they gave me a job in the contracting group. Now, here I was, I sit down and I thought to myself, what in God's name do I know about contract management? And uh, we had federal regulations we had the FARS federal acquisition guidelines. We had the federal grant guidelines for the agency that was giving BART money. We had a public contracts code. We had a, a, a district act. We had an operating budget re- resolution and we had a procurement manual. And then we had boilerplate contracting documents. And then we'd have requests for proposals. So I had to overnight become conversant on this material. And then we went through a procurement systems review about three years into the process. And then I was re- responsible manager for managing, uh, for basically, you know, working with the federal group that came in to certify our systems, none of which I had done uh, three years before that. So, again, here we go, you know, like studying Russian in the 70s or learning how to do uh, other types of work, you know, going to law school in the 1979 period versus learning how to sell lightweight concrete aggregate in the 1987 time frame to doing process chemistry work in the 1989. And then 1991, I, I had to learn the whole federal process. And uh, once again, you know, got into this thing and we, and I did well. Uh, we, we aced all the reviews. I'm really proud on a personal level, and this is kind of the, I think all the engineers, and I would offer this to any of the young engineers, is part of what your life is about is the integrity and your your satisfaction with what you've done in life and what you've accomplished. And I was very proud of the fact that there were about four major transportation projects in the 90s that were active, and ours was one of the few that got through without a major scandal. Uh, the one in Los Angeles had a major meltdown, and they shipped a number of people to jail. They had some other problems in some of the other projects, but the San Francisco projects didn't send anybody. That's an amazing aspect of an engineering. Who did you send to jail? But <laughs> who did? <you laughs> did? Right. But I, I, but that's part of you know working in a large agency, and this kind of segues to the next step of our discussion: How do you adapt? 
And if you work in organizations, you pretty much get on an escalator and you, you start moving up. And I came on board as a supervising contract manager, became manager of contract administration. And then later on, I became director of procurement and logistics. And at every step of the way, I had to adapt and I had to broaden myself in areas I'd never really worked before. And I had to learn. I had to learn supply chain logistics and I had to learn uh, intellectual property uh, we had a whole bunch of intellectual property issues with the district with vendors and all these things were things I think, you know, if you told me 25 years earlier than that, that I was going to you know need these as part of my career, uh, I would not have believed that. I think what people don't understand when they go through engineering school is that you are, you're effectively, it's, it's, it's like pre-med engineering in a sense is a, 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 it's like the equivalent of a liberal arts degree for today's world. You really, it's a springboard in a sense of allowing you to, to get into these other areas and a very strong end. Now, some people are very, and, and might say, I'm, I'm really enjoy structures. I'm going to stay in structures and I'm really going to stay in a specialization in that. That's fine, but you have a much tougher time to get into that field today because if you look at these engineering teams and i don't know if adam or brian wants to comment on this but you have a more of a mix of professionals and paraprofessionals and what i call technical or clerical people today than i think you saw 30 years ago you saw teams of engineers that truly were engineers and what i think today people don't understand and in terms of getting out working is they're really working as a paraprofessional uh there's really nothing wrong with that but it, but you know that the expectation is that I'm going to function at a professional level is much much more difficult, particularly if you work in what I would call the hardcore engineering ends. Uh, and I saw, particularly in terms of buying work or negotiating service contracts, you would see more and more of these 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 teams where people were essentially, and they, in some cases, even labeled paraprofessionals. So you've gotten in the legal field, you got paralegals, and in the uh, uh, medical field, you have the nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Uh, we haven't gotten to the comfortable yet with the para engineer term in in the engineering side. So mm-hmm. I, I think, well, at least where I work, we call them engineering technicians. Yeah. What in your mind? What would be the difference between an engineering technician and a paraprofessional? You, you know, I don't see a, a whole lot of of real difference from a practical perspective in my mind. Interesting. I think it uh, it depends on what how the what their knowledge is, what their the amount of direction, and what their role in the specific deliverables are. Uh, in terms of that, I I guess I you know the tech technicians depending on what the role is and what they're doing, the amount of field work, um, it, it, you know, it works both ways. But if you look at the other professions, the paraprofessional concept and paraprofessional uh, nomenclature and, and designations are much more uh, common than engineering. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, particularly what you get into is, uh, is the way the engineering, the engineers deliver. Like I, I grew up, and practice in the field when design build was becoming big in civil engineering project delivery. And so that became much more difficult to separate who was doing what. And it blurred a lot of the standard lines in terms of responsibilities. So everything in my career went really great till I turned 50. Okay. And when I turned 50, it was like all of a sudden it was like somebody reached in and flipped a switch. I'd never been fired in my career, never lost a job. 
And then all of a sudden I, you know, I, and so I had gone through a series of progressions. I had gone from a supervisor to a basically unit manager to a director. And then I got promoted uh, to a transit agency down in Southern California as an executive, as a, as effectively a vice president, what they want to call a vice president, assistant general manager, you do whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there, again, is this, uh, uh, conceit among engineers that we we know how to do everything, and I think that you know I I had negotiated my way up through different levels, and I had done a pretty good job. And and the engineers we think of ourselves as superheroes, as individuals. You know, I can move mountains. I can I can I can move this. I can make this happen. And then what you don't understand is that that as you get into more responsible positions, you need to develop more of a team uh, concept. And also, too, in terms of negotiating compensation packages or negotiating jobs, you need to understand what type of resources um, you're going to have available, what type of consultant budget you can work with, what type of hire and fire authority you have, or ultimately how much of a management team can I bring in with you. And I kind of hit my uh, Peter limit with the executive position because I went into a position and I really didn't do a very good job negotiating the resources and what was available to me. So I had a lo- I had a lot of problems working with the senior executive team mm-hmm. in terms of that. So I think that the lesson to be learned on this is that, you know, in your 40s, you're going to be dealing with management choices and, and decisions on where you stay, what you do. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is two aspects. One is this, that, uh, you know, the jobs become more complex as you move through in terms of what the total package is. And it's a lot more than just simply salary. It's it's the nature of the job. It's the type of budgets you'll be managing, responsibilities. It's a it's a palette of different pieces. And and that's a that's a key part of that is to understand that. One of the things I did not this brings in my next piece, which is I really did not develop I had worked on developing a network, but I really hadn't developed a mentor. And I really encourage everyone, particularly as your your career becomes more complex and as you start making more difficult choices, you really need to reach out and grab a mentor. You need to start developing mentor relationships because you just can't do it on your own. You think you can, but you can't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's that part. I think that, you know, the next part of that is that uh, the crash, Tivami. In other words, uh, you – you uh, what what do you do after that? All of us make missteps or things happen. I can't speak for, you know, what your experience was like, Jeff, or some of the other uh, people. Right. But the uh, but all of us, I think, have had missteps and have basically been bounced out of management positions and draw and 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 you suddenly realize at that point it is a long way down. And so the, the challenge to you or to the engineer is to develop a survival strategy for how to hold on to be a professional because it's so easy to have a, a misstep there and literally fall all the way down to where you can't even get a job as a clerical. Uh, I had a, a, a couple quick war stories. I had a, uh, one of the guys that uh, I, I, I would go through job after job where uh, I would interview with a young person who was half my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and, and the, the recruiter would call me up and say, he said, hands down, you were the most qualified person to do the job and you're not getting the job. 
I was like, wait a minute, hold on. How's that? How does this work? Right. You know, I, I'm the most qualified guy. I've accepted your crap salary offer. You know, I've done all this stuff. So why don't I get the job? Well, you know, the guy who's, who's working, the guy you'll be working for is terrified. You'll get in there and you'll have his job in 90 days. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I constantly hit that. And so you start getting into this age bias and, and it's really becomes tough to try and come up with something that survives. Right. And that was very difficult for me. I wound up literally migrating all across the country uh, out of the West Coast trying to find work. Uh, and I wound up uh, getting work with a government agency back in the East Coast, lived in California for 30 years and wound up getting relocated back to the East Coast. And uh, every Californian's vision of hell is to wake up in the East Coast in the middle of the summer with humidity at 95%. So, you know, that was just like, what is going on here? Yeah. But uh, I just... Uh, you know, it, it, it was, uh, it was quite a deal. So that's the life cycle of an engineer with one final caveat is now it's like monopoly. You get to the end of the line and you're ready to go to the retirement home. And then what? You know, and you've lived your life as this very disciplined individual. And so therefore retirement in some ways is just as much of a challenge as a job. You've been you know, your whole life. You've been disciplined. You've been focused and, and you can't just pull your, you can't pull the cord on that. So sometimes retirement is just as much of a challenge as, uh, as working. Right. So, uh, that's it. Okay. Well, appreciate your, uh, your sharing your, uh, your stories with us, Mike and, and, uh, the, uh, your ability to adapt to uh, to the many downturns you've you've encountered in your career, I under I understand that you've uh, now that you have retired, you've moved into some other activities. What are you currently doing? Well, I I tried to do some consulting work after I got out of out of reti- uh, retiring, and I literally you could you could hear the the, the crickets chirping. So I, I waited a couple of years and nothing developed, and then I decided that uh, I I tried to do I basically started up my own nonprofit. Be to basically try to do some something that was engaging for me, uh-huh. and uh, so I've I've gone into the area of engineering preservation, and I think that's a, going to be a basically a growth field for civils in the future because there are all these historic structures that need preservation work out there, and engineers have the background to understand how these structures uh, were built, what their service conditions were, and how do we adapt them for 21st century environments. What do we do? Uh, and a lot of the 19th century, particularly looking at 1825 to 1940, a lot of that uh, design history and design experience was lost. And so recreating that, recreating a lot, a number of these structures were built with cast iron, not steel, uh, a variety of, you know, low quality masonry, of you know, wood structures, wood truss systems. So I think uh, preservation, civil engineering, History and heritage is a growth field that, that we're going to see more of that in the future that ties in. Civil engineers will work for museums. And I, th- I encourage people to look at that as that's an area that is a growth field for civil engineers. So, um, you know, I've, I've got my, gave you my contact information in terms of I started up a, a museum called Frederick and Pennsylvania Line Railroad Museum. And the civil engineers were the rock stars of the 19th century. We, If you look at the guys who did the engineering for the railroads in the 1840 to 1860 time frame, they did everything. They designed the steam locomotive. They did that. They they did the, the track work. They did all the rail. They designed the bridges. But most amazing thing for me was that they actually did the um, – they, they would do the steam locomotives that the – 
the mechanicals didn't split off from the civils till after the Civil War. The architects didn't split off from the civils till about 1890. Mm-hmm. So it used to be the American Society of Civil Engineers and Architects up until about the 1890 time frame. So uh, civils were the rock stars of the of the 19th century. We're not. It's very unlikely we'll get anything close to that now. But it was. It's fun to look back at what these guys did back then. Right. Well, and there's there's the uh, you know the current need for more civils to just uh, to repair what's already out there. Yes, but it's nothing like what it was 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's a hollow echo of that. And and so much of it today is is driven by the technology. And I was watching a guy, you know, like even even now what, what the CAD work and everything we used to do, a friend of mine is doing some work in, in building and information modeling and now they're into these augmented reality systems where the guy can move things around with his hands. So you're not even looking at the uh, – and the intelligence behind that is moving the utilities and structural framing. Mm-hmm. And it's doing – it's recalculating the stress and, and service loads on the fly as this, as this individual's moving structural framing around. Right. I mean, I mean, there's some monstrous c- computation going on there. So – I don't think that the, the real. I I don't know if you you're you're you said you talked about your teaching at Indiana. I I go to University of Maryland, and I go to the engineering library to get some books. And I'm the old fart walking through the uh, the decrepit guy walking through the, uh, uh, the the stacks, you know. And I see these kids uh, standing around looking at laptops, and I look. They're using Wolfram Mathematica, and they're doing. They're using the mathematical reasoning, and the, and I look at some of the applications they're using. I can't even begin to understand what they're doing. And that's the <laughs> level. That's the level that they're thinking at. Right. So you know, you use the tools you have available to to you. Yes. And, and they have some pretty cool tools. Oh my God! Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike. We should probably wrap this up and and let you get on with your evening. But uh, thank you so very much for spending some time with us and and uh, sharing how one might go about uh, withstanding the. Uh, the roller coaster. Vicissitudes. Is that the right word? Yeah. Well, there used to be a phrase we used to say all the time. Every time I started off a different job at the place where I worked, they'd say, welcome to the vortex. Uh-huh. So that's that's <laughs> that's kind of like what it, what it felt like. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of the conversation with you guys. Okay. We, we've enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Take care. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.